HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, Heritage Radio Network podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Chiara Delis Pepe. That's her full name. That's the last time I'm going to call her that. We're going to talk to Chiara about Emilio Pepe, Abruzzo, wine, her wines, and a lot more. We're going to taste, and this knocked me off my chair, a 2000 Montepulciano de Abruzzo that Chiara brought in. Um, I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Chiara Pepe is a third generation winemaker in Abruzzo, Italy. Her grandfather's grandfather made home wine in the basement, dating back to the late 1800s, eventually becoming the Emilio Pepe Winery in 1964 one of the most highly regarded and sought after wines in the world. Chiara, along with her mom and sister, run the winery with Chiara overseeing the land, vines, grapes, and cellar. She farms biodynamically with no intervention in the cellar and is a magician with Trebbiano and Montepulciano di Abruzzo. Chiara is in New York to pour at the Caractere Salon, and she's been doing a few other events, which we'll talk about. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Kiara. Thanks for having me, Sam. Um, I'm excited to sit across from you. Um, you know, I've been very much aware of your wines, drinking them and buying them whenever I can. And I'm excited to be face-to-face with you um, to talk about everything. Kiara is, we're talking in New York, Kiara is in town to pour wines at the Caractere Salon, and she participated in a panel on agriculture. Mm -hmm. Um, What else have you been doing in New York? Um, 
eating and drinking. Okay. It's a good spot to do that. Kind of better. Catching than... up with friends. Okay. Um, but is it fair to say you really came in to be part of character? Indeed, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, when are you going back? Uh, on Monday. Okay. And so it's, it's a short Friday, little... so she has the yeah. weekend to party. All right. Before we get into the wines, the winery, everything you do out there, I want to talk to you about three things, all right? I want to talk to you about your personal journey, sort of when the wine thing started and how you got here. I want you to tell me a little about the family winery, more of a chronological history. And then I think in a little bit when we start talking about the wines and the vineyards, frame, you know, where Abruzzo is and what's going on there. Um, so let's start with, tell me your journey in life and wine that got you really to where you are today, which is a family winery running side by side, the best thing with your mom and your sister. When did the wine thing start for you? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because everything happened in a very natural and organic way in some sort. Makes sense. You know, like, um, we live on top of the winery, so there's never a distinction in within wine life, family life, and like everything, it's intermingled. So you grew up? I grew up at the winery, yeah. Like born and grew up, little mm. kid running around. Yes. Okay, yeah. sorry yeah. to interrupt. So, and, um, and, you know, like the estate, when I was growing up, it was it's very small. It was just grandma and granddad running the whole thing, and they had four actors, and... Um, so I was basically, you know, my mom would drop me at grandparents and I would hang out with them, whatever they were doing, whether grandfather was pruning or whether they were both bottling. And uh, I was just, you know, sitting around with them. And so I kind of like got a very natural feeling of what wine life was um, that never felt the, the, the felt natural to them and normal to them. And I kind of got that sense of being part of that thing. And so, you know, slowly I grew up and um, I started traveling with grandfather a little bit while he was traveling around. How old were you? Uh, very so early, 14, 15. So young teenager. <clears throat> very young. He uh, had the presence of mind to say, you're coming with me, let's go. He would always be, you know, very... He, he was very small because he never let us feel the pressure of like working into the winery or taking over, but he was very good at passing on the passion. So that, you know, let us very free smart. to, you know, travel, do our things, study something else. I didn't study enology. I studied, you know, business. That's completely different. Where would he take you traveling? Um, we went to Australia. Grandfather loved Australia. Oh, so some pretty cool, mm. funky, far mm. places. Not like Trentino no. Alto. Anyway. No, no, no. Like we, of... you know, plain and, yeah, you yeah. know, on the other side of the oceans. Um, uh, we came to New York um, since, you know, yeah. And, um, and, and basically what attracted me back was passion and not sense of responsibility, for instance. So he was very smart in doing that. His plan worked. <laughs> So, so what happens? I mean, how do you Happened, pursue that? Uh, little by little, I started, you know, traveling by myself and uh, spreading the gospel uh, and talking about the wines. And um, till the point, and I completed my studies and I kept doing that, till the point in which talking about wine wasn't enough anymore for me, I wanted to make wine. 
And so happened, uh, like this series of thing that happens in life, I was at a tasting in which uh, I was sitting next to Aubert de Villene on one side and, uh, um, <laughs> and, um, and I asked him a question and I asked him, uh, if you go back, what would you study? And uh, he wrote me on a little paper, a course in Burgundy um, at, um, at the university. Uh, basically, you were planned to go to school just one day per week. And the rest of the week, you had to be in the vineyards. And I've enrolled right away, clearly. As on his said. recommendation. Yes. How old were you then? I was 26. Okay. So later on, I had completed my studies in economics, and then I kept, you know, working for the estate, and then I Did visited. you ever have other outside jobs? You know, or... no, I've always so you're worked always for tied the estate. To the family. Yes. Okay. And then I, so I enrolled. I moved to Burgundy, and I started working and studying enology and viticulture. And uh, I spent one year there, and I think it was the most um, enlightening period that I've had so far in terms of accumulating a lot of knowledge in a very fast way and a lot of a lot of information. Because you know, Burgundy is a community where people right. are very excited and happy to share to share thoughts and share little details and share wine making ideas and. Uh, Community. It's a community. It's a very good place where to learn and think about wine and everybody wants to share and drink all the time. So you have opportunity to taste a lot of wines and to walk the vines of Le Lubis Le Roi and, and see what they're thinking and see what they're doing. And so you have a lot of inspiration altogether um, combined with everything that and everything I grew up with, so the knowledge that I gained just by watching and observing and living in a winemaking family. So I came back and that's when I took over viticulture and winemaking. Was the program a year or was it less and you stayed around? So you did the full year, program yeah. and it was fairly intensive? It was intensive because of the context. Right. It was Which in, you described a little Yeah. And um, and so I came back um, and I was very excited, and um, and that's when I did my first um, harvest at Pepe in 2020. Oh, 2020? Yeah, that's only just four years ago. I didn't realize mm -hmm. it was. Yeah. Okay, so when you say you came and did your first harvest, everyone was happy. That you came back. They I embraced was, the idea that you mm -hmm. were ready to come. And, I was very much expected. So who gave you the directive, now go out and do the harvest, and here's what you're going to do after that? How did that um, play out? Well, it was my aunt, especially because she was in charge of winemaking before me. And uh, there was a point in which... That's the, Sophia? Yeah, correct, okay. correct. And That's your mom's sister? or Indeed. Okay. Yeah. So my mom and my aunt are the owner of the estate today. Right. Uh, but she was vinifying before me and she took over from grandfather. But there was a point in which I was traveling a lot and they were like, you better come home. There's a lot of work down here. And uh, and so I was expected and I was, you know, I had the call back in Abruzzo. And so I did. But were I you emotionally ready? Um, I was ready after Burgundy. I wouldn't have been ready before Burgundy okay. for sure. I needed so much more security under the point of view of 
the technical aspects, the chemistry aspects, the, the more technical part, which I've only been observing, but if I felt I needed to learn more and be secure and be strong. And that's exactly what Burgundy offered me. And um, mm. yeah. Um, so we're talking about a harvest three years later. I mean, mm -hmm. 2023, you're probably at the end of the harvest or near it. So today and going forward, what are you tasked with doing? What are your responsibilities? Okay. Well, it has been a big change because like if before I was, you know, moving around from New York to Tokyo and then spending like the important and crucial moment at the estate. Now I'd say I'm for 80% of my time at the estate and, uh, had the luck and opportunity to build myself a, a younger team that works with me in the vineyard and in the cellar. And um, I'm in charge of all the viticulture aspects and vinification aspects. So I'm spending a lot of time in the vineyards, especially. I think that's, that's the part where I put more of my energies because everything has been changing a lot over the past decade in, in, in or the world. so. I mean, in the we'll world. talk about that, yes. you, you know, the challenges. You know, you said you brought in people, you know, some younger people. Yeah. Does that mean the people that were there were kind of old thinkers and you need to clear it out or there weren't that many people and you needed to add or a little of both? A little bit I of mean, both. you know, this is a family business. Yeah. It's kind of controversial for you to come in. And yeah. How'd that go? Yeah. It, it is always a tricky and yeah. delicate moment because I've inherited grandfather's team who were a bunch of 80 years old. Oh, it's time. Any, <laughs> no age discrimination, but it's no, time. No. Plus, you need to fulfill your vision and push it. As well. And it was very hard to motivate them to give a silica at 5 a.m. in the morning. And they were thought they were spraying water somehow in the air. And they were like, <laughs> why are we even doing this? So, you know, as you can imagine, I, I needed somebody that was, you know, pushing and, and enforcing my own vision of farming and agriculture that I'm, I'm dreaming for Pepe. So um, now it's, it's great because I have a team of six and it's a team that, um, it's the same team that move around vineyard and cellar. So I have no division in between the two so that everybody's aware of what's Perfect. happening all the time in the vineyard and in the cellar. And when we receive the fruit from a very specific vineyard, everybody exactly recalls how the season was and how that vineyard behave Very throughout the whole the season. So, so is that one of the aspects of what these people are doing versus the older guys? I, I mean, how much different? Yeah. I, I mean, when you farm the way you do and you have that overall vision, you execute it. But the things you're doing now, how much different then? I think what I'm planning, it's a totally different uh, tightness of symbiosis in between human and plants. Or have and, symbiosis at all. Yeah. Right. And um, and so the, the the conversation that is open with my team 
goes to a different level of intimacy. Um, that nowadays we have so many more information on how the plant function and how certain rhythms actually influence a, a plant's behavior. And now we don't only know by observation, we know also based on scientific facts. So we're able to incorporate the two things and have a much broader and more detailed vision of what's going on. And I think that is really the base also to face what's happening in terms of climate and balance. So I think, um, so I know it is a, a, a strong more modern head. approach, taking advantage of what's available and being more keyed into it, right? Indeed, more fine-tuned, but also forming with more delicacy and more precision of observation without, you know, I'm... I'm kind of like I'm moving in different direction and I think I'm I'm learning a lot because I'm you know giving certain impulses and see how nature responds back to me and so we are very much in a phase of fast learning because you know we are experiences experiencing very different seasons in very short you know, right, time that. frame. And so we're we're watching and we are experimenting with milk treatments. We're like slowly but surely go, going almost completely not healing without being extremely dogmatic around it. Um, and so like all those things require certain things to be in place in order to build up to what you want to achieve. Is anyone whether it's your aunt, mom, or anyone else, is anyone standing over your shoulder, you know, saying, don't do that or try this, or you're basically out there with your crew, like you said, you know, figuring out what you think is best. How does that work? There are two things um, that I always think uh, is that I, indeed, I've been given a lot of freedom by my family. They've been incredibly open-minded. And uh, grandfather was the very first one who pioneered something completely weird in Abruzzo back in the days. Nobody was aging wine in Abruzzo. Nobody was still planting in pergola. Everybody was transitioning to like modern ways of so, planting. So before you get more descriptive, because I want to spend more time on that, that's a good segue just give me a quick line of the history. Yeah. You know, because you say grandfather, like yeah. where did he fit in and your mom? Yeah. You know, just go. Yeah. Don't yeah. spend too much time on each I'll be thing. fast. So grandfather's grandfather was making wine in the family home where grandfather was born. Literally a home winemaker yes. for the table, right? Indeed, yeah. yeah. Table consumed at the at the, at the the house. Um, grandfather was born in that house. He saw winemaking being, you know, done at the house since it was a little kid. Um, the family was a family of farmers, so he knew how to farm land. Um, at the age of 30 years old, he realizes that he wanted to do something of his own uh, and he wants to create something. What did he know how to do best? Winemaking. Uh, because he knew, he saw in the family and he knew how to do it somehow. He was a smart guy. And it was like, that's what I'm going to do. So... Uh, 1964, he bottled for the first time his own vintage. So um, he had one parcel. So in 64, he said, this is the beginning of not an internal family yeah, wine Yeah, I'm going to bottle, I'm going to sell it. 
I'm going to sell the family hat wine. Did he sell that wine or um, he held half, on to it? Half, half. He did half. Half he, he held on to it and then the other half he sold. Um, but there were about 4,000 bottles being produced uh, back then. And uh, grandfather that same year gets married to my grandmother and together they embark on this journey. Grandmother was a teacher. Um, she leaves her job very early to be next to her grandfather because there were literally the two of them. Um, for probably the first 20 years, it was a very small estate in within that were making in between four and 8,000 bottles per year. So when you say that you're talking like 1964 to 84, Indeed. like those years yeah, those were years. just very kind of low output, quiet. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it was very artisanal. They were still vinifying at the bottom of, of the very old house. Um, he start grandfather started selling a little bit, but the very first beginning already he starts holding back onto some of the production because he had this gut feeling that Montepulciano needed to age. So um, is this a guy who either he was, you know, in his own world, didn't travel as much or whatever? Did he taste Barolos and Tuscan wines? And other, did, like, how did he know that, you know, the Montepulciano mm. needed it? He just tasted it and realized the structure, right? Um, I say... It's a gut feeling. It's my okay. imagination because you wouldn't say much around it. So grandfather always, as soon as he started making wine, like he, he, he was a, a very good farmer and rooted in his place, but he also traveled the world because he loved it and also because his wines were much more appreciated abroad than in his own inner land, but that it's normal somehow. Um, but yet, it, it was a gut feeling. It was an intuition. It was a necessity. He always thought that Montepulciano was too much all at once when young. And he only thought that delicacy and grace and elegance could arrive with time. So. All right, so let's finish the timeline. Yeah, so time. we're, we're up to like the 80s. 80s. It's kind of a good, interesting, quiet start. Yeah. Then what happens? What happens? What happens? Happens that grandma and granddad had three daughters. Clearly, granddad, when the third daughter is born, he faints at the hospital because he was looking for a boy that could drive the tractor, right? Bummed um, out. <laughs> um, meanwhile, grandfather, as soon as he started to have a little bit of money, he starts the building of a cellar. But that is not a production cellar. It is an aging cellar. And that shows the big vision he had around aging. Um, that was like his first commitment. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, backing up his idea of aging, he needed. Yeah. And also stuff. that goes with a financial possibility of, because it's, it's complicated when you start aging in terms of cash flow. Because there is you're, no cash oh, flow. There's no there's cash half flow. the cash flow. So um, it is complicated. Now, the money he has to finance is from the growth in production and sales. That's he was selling a little bit and right. whatever he was, and he was selling, putting all the money back into on the, the seller. Okay. Yeah. And uh, uh, three daughters, um, only two follow up, and they they inherit the winery. And now we're talking early. Your mom 2000. and Sophia, your yeah, aunt, indeed. So when um, did they 
get the nod like you're running the winery? When was that? Um, early 2000s. Okay. Yeah, early 2000s. The estate was quite small until back then. And there, my aunt was young and then my mom was called back. My mom was uh, an accountant and she was like, okay, you two come back and, and now you're part of this. So they inherit the winery. My mom takes over all the finance and uh, the business, business uh, administration of the thing. And my aunt does all the practical stuff. So my aunt before that followed grandfather just watching him in the cellar. Grandfather was a very complicated person to take over from because he was very jealous of his own thing. He was very, very particular and meticulous and precise. Even his own kid he wouldn't open up to? It was, it, it just, it, he would be very jealous and it took forever for my aunt to take so over. So she and, learned by osmosis, just by being and watching. Yes, watching. So from the, you know, early 90s till 2000 when she took over, she watched. And 2000 was our first vintage. Uh, we have that bottle in indeed, front of us. Indeed, yeah, here we we'll are. We'll talk about that yes. in a little bit. Um, and, and both of them have been running the winery since, and grandfather have been observing and being very, you know, watching on us. And, um, and so, yeah, and now uh, in, in 2020, me and, and my sister came into the winery and being like, you know, part of things. So now... In fact, there are three generations working together. Uh, when your grandfather passed, right? No, no, He's, still, wow, still watching how old on is us. He? Ninety-one. And ninety-one. Is he Both a healthy grandma. ninety-one or healthy ninety-one. Healthy ninety-one. He? I have to say, um, he that's is still awesome. Walking up sure. the vineyards, walking up the vineyards. He's still like you know not active anymore. Like so, it's like he would ask questions, but. Um, so he doesn't bug you? No, not any longer. He doesn't but... roam around as much. <laughs> but has been, yeah, for, has been a long time of that. Um, All right, so that... So that is the experience. That brings us up to it. Now we can yeah. talk about all the cool, fun, interesting stuff. So um, a nod to your grandfather. I mean, he certainly was ahead of his time, um, you know, in all the research and, you know, talking to people. One of the things we're going to get into that you talked about a little is he did not interfere with the natural rhythms mm -hmm. of the vineyards and yeah. even the vinification. Yeah. Um, is it fair to say, and I think the answer is yes, that you practice the same styles out in the vineyards and, you know, in your winemaking, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's start outside in the vineyards, Okay. Um, you're farming organically and, and biodynamically. Um, so the question is not what is biodynamics. Mm -hmm. The question is what are the elements or how do you farm biodynamically? There's the whole Rudolf Steiner thing. Yeah. Wasn't your grandfather farming organically and somewhat biodynamically before there were even... So tell me, you know, that that carries over what you do. You talked about your own crew and changes. What does that mean to people? Because that's really a cornerstone of what Pepe is, is mm -hmm. that, you know, it's thoughtful, sustainable farming. Um, I would say grandfather would farm his vineyard like gardens. Um, he would always, like, I remember being a little girl and seeing him spend just a lot of time walking the vines walking the vines and you know putting the leaves up but 
he would be like there, immersed a lot of time. And I think partially quality of observation comes through that. I agree. Through being immersed in nature, in within your own vineyards. And, um, and he would always radically refuse any use of chemicals, both in the vineyards and in the cellar. So those were the very first base ground of Emilio Pepe, spontaneous fermentation and wines that I've never seen any, any Explain weed Explain what spontaneous fermentation is. That's just using the natural yeast on the skins that exist. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. There, Where some people were bringing in and adding yeah, yeast. To me, notion of terroir includes and has to include the use of natural yeast because that changes every year. So if you respect seasonality, and you want to make wine that have a sense of place. Well, those yeast are indigenous to your own place and nobody else's. Was the observation looking around that most people, you know, maybe after the war started farming with chemicals or a lot of people had a similar sensibility? Um, it is complicated to say. I think it's a very, it's very much of individual act of sensitivity and respect towards land. It is very true that in within the, you know, late 60s and early 70s, industrialization arrived in the farming right. world. And, and clearly all of a sudden you had those mm, huge tractors and you have wheat killers so machinery, and machinery. Which and, has an impact on the land. Yeah. Chemicals? Yeah, all of a sudden in the 70s. But tell everyone why people use chemicals. The output? I mean, the Cutting end result corners. was terrible, but... Um, I think it's poor knowledge of the results and cutting corners. Right. I think there's there cannot be any cutting corners in farming because you will leave a mark written into your land. And unfortunately, and today we know what is the impact onto our health and to the microbiome of the soils when those chemicals arrive. There's no going back. There's no microbiome. There's no the microbiome. Yeah. So I feel incredibly lucky that grandfather always strongly refused any of that because I've inherited soils that were pristine and soils under which, you know, and also when you inherit something like that, the responsibility that you inherit, it's even stronger because you're like, oh, like I got it to be improving even more, something right. that is already incredible, you know? So, um, but it's definitely more responsibility that comes because there's no restoration to be done. There's no building back life. Life is already there. How do you elevate? a system and an ecosystem that is already in place. So some people inherit property where it was treated mm. and you can to some extent bring it back, right? Mm. Not really. It's very complicated, it's, it's complicated. or it takes so, so you, long. Right. You never had that challenge, yeah. but you feel the responsibility as a steward yeah. to keep it, you know, and make it better. Um, so 
what are some of the things you're doing? I mean, you're like handpicking. You mentioned no yeah, machines. Of course, of course, no machinery. You know, what? there's a lot of things that I'm experimenting. And as I said, especially in the farming area, because what do you do when you inherit a, a winery that has been running for 60 years and people know Emilio Pepe through a sense of artisanality and sense of place and wines that can age for a very long time. So you have a certain legacy related to that in a climate that is radically changing. So to me and my interpretation of vision is first, I have to keep the project alive. So you said, and I thought this was very interesting and this is where you're going. You said you are a daughter of global warming. Yeah. And you are. I Because what you inherited physically is now subjected to this challenge. Yeah. Right? So what are those challenges and what do you have to do? Yeah. So I mean being biodynamic organic. That helps, is an but, incredible but tool. Let's talk about that what is an incredible tool. Different what you have to do today than yeah. 2000. And to me is that um, you know as while keeping grandfather's project alive I still want to be delivering the same idea of wines that he was making but as a lot of inputs climatically are changing I still want to go from the same point A, so my terroir, my farm, to the same point B, wines that have a sense of place and I can age for a very long time and they are reflecting the season that growing into. But to go from point A to point B, I have to take a very different route from what grandfather was taking. Let's talk about that. So um, first, and while I'm not changing any strong aspect in within the vinification in the farming that's where I'm changing most of the things so I'm rethinking shading and vineyard soil managing so um grandfather back in the days used to plow a lot it was his own way of taking care of his own vineyard now we're as I said before, without being fully dogmatic, but slowly going completely no-tilling. When he plowed, does that mean there wasn't that much cover crop? Yeah. Because you'd break it up? Yeah, yeah. And so you're going in a different now direction? Now the idea is to plant a lot of different essences, um, a lot of different greens, which through their root system, they interact with the soil and they build different kind of structure and compounds. And then I'm folding all those herbs and essences in order to create a natural mulching and a permanent cover crop. So this is allowing me to retain a lot of moist into the ground, but also allowing me an auto-reseeding for the next growth of those permanent cover crop. And that has been functioning very well in very dry season, but as well in very rainy season when that cover crop or that mulching that had like nothing had been cut and all the roots in place helped to keep the soil in place and not being washed out as I had like all my neighbors that had their vineyard washed out their topsoils down into the bottom of their valley and another aspect I've been working on is different kind of treatment I've been 
experimenting, treated with the milk. How do you come up with, let me see if milk is something versus well, they, honey and seawater? Yes, I mean, yeah, how do you yeah. come up with something? Well, there have been several studies of the effect of the proteins of milk being activated by sunlight and becoming antifungenic um, against um, especially oedium. And when I was working in Burgundy, uh, the vineyard I was working for, they were treating exclusively with milk. And as I was there in the vineyard, I could see how it was functioning and the reaction and the percentages accordingly to the pressure that they had in that season. So that gave me a lot of uh, um, knowledge around the use and uh, adjustment to the percentages of milk that you use accordingly to the pressure. Another thing that I'm working a lot is that um, I've been working on agroforestry in order to create an extra level of shading for my grapes. And grandfather was already working with pergolas, so a canopy protection and the grapes were growing. So that, talk about that for a second, is that vertical farming? Vertical farming. When people imagine vineyards, they see these low sideway things. Yeah. You're literally going the other way. It's yes. a taller plant with a little different yes. canopy. It is very curious because... And that goes back to your grandfather, right? Yeah. So what's what was the reason he did it and the benefit, and does that help with global warming? Yeah. Tell me about that. Um, it all started, like, you know, when you see people coming and seeing you as a winemaker, one of the first questions I would ask is, um, what's your surface, right? And I was thinking about that. and you I mean was composition like, and everything? Yeah. Like, how many hectares? What's your surface? Right, right. 17, 20, 40. And I was like, well, no. We haven't got surfaces. We have volumes. We work with volumes. We work with everything that that is visible, but everything that is on the ground and invisible. That is also the part that we take care of. And I was like, how can I occupy more of that volume? Because there is this tendency of the vine to you know, reached towards the light. And grandfather was already working on the pergola. He loved the pergola. He thought that Montepulciano could perform the best through pergola because the grapes were only getting ripe in the shade and the skins was remaining very thin and the quality of tannins very elegant. Um, whether if you would grow Montepulciano in rows, it would be much more exposed to sunlight. It, the skin will get thicker, thicker and the tannins rougher. So you, you would lose that sense of elegance of tannins that could only achieve with pergola. And also what is very important is that you can have with pergola long ripening cycles. So having more of that phenolic ripening that we're trying to achieve because we want to make age-worthy wine by also preserving a lot of acidity, especially tartaric acidity. So it is crucially important in a situation of excessive sunlight to have pergola. So everything that I'm planting again it's in pergola, but all those pergolas are surrounded by trees. So that will Which go is that forestry up. you're trying to. Yeah. So that's literally planting trees around the vineyards yes. that didn't exist. Yeah. But that's a long time project commitment. Yes, indeed. Never yeah. too late to start. 
I mean, you know, I'm starting now, so I can't blame for other people of not doing it. Oh, that's my time now. That's when I'll start it's doing it. It's amazing how on top of it your grandfather was, but it's amazing that there are still many opportunities to do the right things or add things that... You know, you almost want to say, why didn't he do that? Well, you know, he was caught up with doing other, other things, things the right way. Yeah, you know? and I think in within the genetics, there is that gene or, or like the, the, the necessity and the ambition of keep pioneering. Grandfather did something that people called him crazy back in the days. And now, you know, people call me crazy because all my vineyards have been messy and there's a Plenty lot of Plenty of people and, look, you know. look up to you, too, for what you're doing. <laughs> Um, Kiara, we have to take a quick break, um, but when we come back, I want to finish up out in the field. I want to talk about, you know, the actual grapes. We talked a little about Montepulciano de Abruzzo, Trebbiano. You grow a couple other grapes. Those are indigenous grapes. I want to get a little more info from you on that. And you're working with different sites. You mentioned earlier you started with three, four hectares. You have more than that now. So I want to know what that is. So we're talking to Chiara Pepe from Emilio Pepe in the Abruzzo region, or Abruzzo in Italy. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about the grapes and the sites, and then we're going to get into the cellar and talk about, you know, what the hell you're doing there. And I want to talk to you about aging. There's still plenty of stuff to talk <laughs> about. So you're listening to The Grape Nation. We'll be right back. Hi, listeners. We wanted to let you know that Heritage Radio Network's Julia Child Fellowship application is now open. The fellowship offers an enriching experience for aspiring food writers and journalists who share our passion for food systems change. The fellowship is a great way to progress in the field of food journalism and digital media and will start in early January 2024. This fellowship will provide participants with hands-on experience, mentorship, and access to an extensive network of industry professionals. The application deadline is November 27, 2023. Check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Julia Child Foundation Writing Fellowship link to learn more. If you or someone you know has interest in food studies and journalism, this might be a great fit. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out the application today. Thank you. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Chiara Pepe from Emilio Pepe, um, a legendary winery in Abruzzo for a lot of reasons. And a lot of the reasons is what we've been talking about. You know, the, the things they do to make these wines. There's, it's steeped in tradition and history and all the right stuff. All right, so finishing up outside in the field, in the vineyards, you predominantly grow Montepulciano di Abruzzo and Trebbiano. Yes. You do Pecorino, which a is interesting, bit, and a little yes. Cherisuelo. Uh-huh. All right. <clears throat> so talk to me about those two grapes. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're indigenous to the area, right? Yeah, indeed. Um, so <clears throat> grandfather um, planted those um, and inherited some of, of Montepulciano grapes, um, 
uh, buying uh, back in the days and then he, he planted more, he always replanted it through muscle selection. So when we talk about Trebbiano d'Abruzzo, is the Trebbiano Abruzzese clone. Trebbiano is one of the most ex- extended and planted um, families in Italy. And you have Trebbiano Spoletino in Umbria, Trebbiano Toscano in Tuscany, and Trebbiano Abruzzese, which clearly grandfather would say is the best of all. Uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's a great varietal that comes in a in a loose bunch and the berries are fairly small with a very transparent almost translucent uh, skin very very thin and normally has beautiful high acidity montepulciano it's also a great varietal that um we tend to protect from sunlight because we want that ripening would only happen through photosynthesis and then, you know, the sugars will, will go through the grapes through sap and never direct contact because it can get fairly rough if exposed to sunlight. Right. Um, and we love to pick both to those two grape varietals when they're ripe because we think that the pa- the message of terroir sense of place happens when the grapes are phenolically ripe and and so you know through that idea we try to make sure we extend the ripening cycle without alcohol getting too high um and we've always been vinifying them in the same exact way that grandfather told of at the very first beginning so trebbiano d'abruzzo grapes together as the pecorino are crushed by feet and we do right. spontaneous fermentation in concrete. Um, the concrete tanks are lined with glass to make the contenitor perfectly neutral. So you, you jumped right into that. You put things in concrete containers, which is a big thing about yeah. Pepe. Yeah. But I didn't realize the concrete is lined with glass. So yeah. there's not that direct exposure to yeah. the concrete At and all. the oxygenation you no get from No porosity the- whatsoever. The idea for grandfather was always to preserve, well, first, not to have the contenitor influence the wine. Right. That's why and I never used a, neutral. Yeah, neutral. Grandfather always say the glass is the house for the wine. And that's why he made wine in glass-lined concrete tanks and then he aged them in bottle. There's always glass all the way through our wine life. So that's not unusual. You use mm-hmm. whatever vessel you want, oak, concrete without glass, glass. But he ages in the bottle. Plenty of people age in the bottle. In a few minutes, we're going to talk about that it's not mm. sitting there for a year, <laughs> you know, which yeah. is an important aspect, <coughs> excuse me, of what Pepe is. Um, so finish up. So Yeah, and Montepulciano is um, hand-destemmed. Um, so we destem by hand, and the idea to destem by hand is because we want to keep a perfect integrity of whole berries. So the machinery or other processes would compromise the berry? Well, now you can I, probably buy the most expensive machines, that and I could do it That will be a you. little less. But for our production... You're stuck in your old ways. And for, right. like, and a, a lot of people are asking me that, that exact question, like... Well, you're now, you're 30 years old and you know that you can have access to all the machinery possible. And I'm like, for the amount of grape that I make, I love that like six people for seven days only that would destem grapes. Destemming with six people is a seven day process? Yeah, by hand. But we touch 
each bunch. It's like, how incredible is that? And I love to do it myself. I will never exchange me doing that for six days in a row with a machine. Like, it is, I can't do that. And I love doing it personally. So I was like, oh, I don't know if I've, it's a nostalgic thing or it's like, uh, I, but I love to touch the grapes. I've seen, I, I was I totally get waiting it. for it's that. It's your like, literal <laughs> connection. You don't do whole cluster or anything. No, else. no, because, well, I'm doing some experiments here and there just to have fun because it's that's what we need to why do. Not? Uh, yeah. Why not? Uh, but on a general base, and I think Montepulciano can can you can do that in very specific year, but normally uh, the full phenolic ripening of the berries um, arrives much earlier compared to the phenolic ripening of the stems. So if you would include the stems, you would have a lot of green and pyrazine that they're not necessarily you know needed. Um, I also think that with the hand stemming, we achieve an incredible quality of whole berry situation in which the day after of the incubage of, of the berries, I have no juice for a pump over. Wow. It means that the whole tank, and we work with small tanks, um, and we unload all the berries by gravity, so the berries are never pumped. They never go through a pump. It's the weight of their own gravity. Yeah, but but at the very first beginning, there's so much integrity that there's no juice being liberated. It means that I'm achieving a very good quality of intracellular fermentation, um, and only later on I would do. I'm I'm quite delicate with extraction, and I think with the climate that is changing, that is definitely one of the things that has slightly changed. Uh, um, we're not extracting as we were back in the days, and I think you know it's quite of like a normal adjustment of of you know as being a daughter of global warming, and so that is kind of like a process of delicacy that it's happening. But um, you know, so no, when you say intracellular fermentation, yeah. There's a little intracellular fermentation, then maybe the berry breaks, and then there's a, yeah. a like and a, a, a yeast continued. outside. Yeah, indeed. So, so the intracellular mm. really is no yeast. No yeast. It's, it's enzymes. It's in, it's enzyme. Okay. Enzyme. So you have enzymatic and a yeast. So enzymatic intracellular and outside of the berry Got you have it. yeast. So that amplifies the spectrum of the aromatics that you're gonna have because you have two fermentations happening exactly at the same time. So um, that, you know, that it's exciting to see happen. And and once we were doing the decuvage, which is like, I don't realize, but it's only two weeks ago that I was doing the process of my Montepulciano 2023. Um, you Are you done? I'm done, yeah, okay. completely done, yeah. Last racking before I left yeah, for I New York, and I was like, oh, so happy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So you talked earlier about, you know, the family starting with four hectares. If I'm correct, you're somewhere around 17. Indeed, correct. <clears throat> so is that obviously acquisition? Is that stuff right around Casa Pepe? Mm. Or you found something good two miles away? Tell me how, how those secting, yeah. where are they situated? Um, so you own them all? Uh, yeah, we own them okay. all, uh, and we farm them all. We never buy any grapes. We never sell any grapes. Um, so we, grandfather had his own vineyards, and then so four actors at first, and then uh, my mom and my aunt, when they started, they planned some more actors in within 2007 and 2005, in within those two years. And then we haven't planted since, well, last year. So... We, we we planted in three different moments. Grandfather, my mom and my aunt, and me. And um, 
So now we have 17 in production, and I've just planted 2.3 in three different locations. So was that family property that wasn't planted? No, or? We, bought, we bought nude land that grandfather loved or my mom and my aunt loved, and we never bought any vineyard that was already planted because we wanted to have control over the genetic material so that was So you had planted. your eyes on plots, and yeah. they became available. Yeah we acquired and now we're done but we're planning to expand the land that we own in order to plan crop rotation around our vineyards so my dream is to have each of my vineyard being sandwiched with crops that are not vines but we cultivate and we cultivate biodynamically and the result of that cover crop is going to nourish the family, the team and the agriturismo, the hospitality that we have. So nowadays we have 10 hectares on top of the 17. We have 10 hectares of crop rotation in within I plant sunflowers, fava beans, contribute to the chi- whole chickpeas and, and, and we well, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. You do a lot with chickpea and flour and all yes, that, which yes, is, yes. you know, very exciting <laughs> too. Um, so it's all farmed, it's all your land. Like you said, you don't buy, you don't sell. That's mm-hmm. exciting. Let's um let's move into the cellar a little and discuss yeah. how you vinify and cellar your wines. Yeah. Um, you know, you talked about the you know, we're not beating up the terms organic, biodynamic, and you're just doing it by practice, you know, and mm. like hand picking is really, you know, you yeah. don't want to machine, you don't machine the land and all that. Um, what steps, you talked about a little, what steps do the grapes go through when they get to the cellar? Mm-hmm. Um, do they, their foot trodden, foot trodden, and then dumped into the concrete. Yeah, straight away. So that this is for the whites. So the idea is to have a, a very quick stimulation of skin and juice at the very first beginning to allow the the juice to have everything that it needs for complete is on spontaneous fermentation, but also to have the basis for long-term aging. So there's a stimulation and then only the juice goes to ferment. So you there's no the farther. Yeah. There's no farther maceration. How long is that? 45 minutes for 300 kilos of grapes. That's it? That's it. The the contact and the skin stay yeah, 45, 45 minutes. minutes and then they're then out like, of there. Yeah. And then that gives you the. Yeah. I, I like to start with a rich must, uh, we, we normally, there's never any debobage, so I make the juice ferment and grandfather historically made ferment with like a very rich situation. And the first um, racking happens only after mallow. So everything ferments in concrete. Um, Tell everyone what mallow, malolactic fermentation. fermentation. Tell so them what that is. We're transforming. Um, we never block um, or inhibit the malolactic fermentation, which is it's a, something that happens naturally. Spontaneous fermentation. You can control it. You let it go naturally. Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise, like you could block it through a lot of sulfur, but this is right. kind of not what we're and doing. Letting the wines go through malolactic fermentation does adds what to the wine um makes the wine i'd say more tender <laughs> people use the word creamy sometimes creamy yes because you're transforming the malic acid in, into lactic acid which is a, a less strong acid Softer. so it makes the wine yeah a different texture like yeah it becomes creamier on a textural level right. and more integration i would say 
So you use indigenous yeast, which is not adding outside yeast. It's the yeast that naturally occurs. Um, obviously, yeast is so important to the process. Huge. Um, don't you need to sort of protect the area, which I think is what you're doing, so that you'll always have these healthy yeasts? Yes. I mean, you want a healthy bios, right? So the way it if happens... if that stops or it's not, you're screwed. The way it happens is that um, life is all around us, right? right. Uh, and... Uh, and you're creating a balance and an equilibrium in within everything that you have. Yeast, they are out there in the nature. And then you bring the grapes back. And the strains of yeast, they come into your cellar and they settle in. But they are what they are. You don't. They manipulate. are what they are. You cannot pick the ones that you like better than others. <laughs> you have, have to you take them Have you analyzed? There's all kinds of oh, different yeah. crazy yeah, strains. Sure. It's yeah. not like a mono thing where it's pretty much the same. No. There's all kinds. You have, you have like. Does that vary vintage to vintage? vintage Weather vintage, controls it. Vineyard to vineyard. Vineyard uh, to vineyard. vineyard Makes to total vineyard. sense. Yeah. What's around it. And uh, we've been, we've been having fun in uh, analyzing the DNA of those strains of yeast that are contributing and participating to our fermentation. And it's quite exciting because it actually, you have those, ambient cellar yeast that because they are in the cellar they will contribute to all your ferments but you have those little strains that are endemic to one vineyard in one season and that's what make the wine reflect the season as well plus the site and the plot yeah too, oh yeah because that strain may yeah. be different than whether it's sunlight, exposure, yeah. And it's irrigation. very um, fascinating to see how they work throughout the fermentation because you have the, the very little yeast that would start at the very first beginning and they would only act for like a couple of hours and then the whole family will die and then another one will take over and then they will die and then the third one and like that for like 40 different strains, 40, 50 different strains. And in a cellar where never any selected yeast has been introduced, you can clearly imagine that there is a huge population coming into the, the ground. Do you know? think you guys obsess over yeast more than other wineries? Oh, God. I don't know. I, I love right. it personally. But like, I don't hear people, you know, I mean... I I spend People my pay evening. attention to a lot of things. That's one of them. But you seem to be very focused. I spend my evenings uh, during fermentation watching into a microscope. So two things. That's very good and important to your wine. But you got to get a life too. Yeah. You got to go out and yeah. not stare. Come to New York and drink all wine. <laughs> you got to have a drink with some friends or something. Not Indeed. even wine, maybe a beer. <laughs> um, so that that's interesting. Um, you know, that's part of the whole thing that makes these wines so interesting. Yeah. I think another thing, which is uber surprising based on the size of the winery and how long you've been doing it, you have a cellar, which you talked about, you know, your grandfather built the space of, what is it, over 350,000 bottles of multi-vintage wines. So that's based on what you said earlier, and now let's expand on it, that your grandfather realized Montepulciano de Abruzzo needs to age, is highly ageable. So he would make wine and age a lot of it. But yeah. Tell me about that. <laughs> um, 
cellar is today packed. We have no more space. <laughs> so we're building a do? new oh, one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that shows also like grandfather proved it right. You know, like time proved him right. And at the very first beginning, nobody had done that before. Nobody it had. It wasn't economically a good idea. <laughs> no idea. God right. knows. Um, but he consistently aged a good chunk of his production consistently, year after year, year after year, not knowing how that was turning out to be. So if you take a vintage, these arbitrary numbers, there's 4,000 bottles, yeah. 400 cases, whatever. He'll decide I'm going to take 40%, 30 half of that, age it, and the other would go to the market? Yeah, historically half. Yeah, Historically half. But it's sort of almost a contradiction because he believes the aging benefits the wine, but he's letting wines out in the market. Yeah, because I he guess, needed still some money. Well, of course. <laughs> but I guess some people would drink it within a few years. And yeah. a lot of people, if they knew the wine, probably laid would, it down yeah. like he did too. Yeah. And that's kind of why it's happening nowadays. Right. We're still operating with the same system. So... Um, half of our production comes from our very, very old vineyard. There are two parcels that one was planted in 1974. The other one was planted in 1966. Those, the wine coming from those two parcels is always the wine that will go into the aging cellar and would only be released after... Those parcels are the most ageable because of the composition, yeah. the exposure. The age of the vines. And the, on the label, you, you read... Selezione Vecchie Vigne, that's the only wine that we export. That's the only wine that we feel confident in letting travel. Um, and then there's another part coming from the, our slightly younger vineyard that is released only in Italy and it's released only three years after three years. But that finances... I would um, die to drink that. Why is it just released in Italy? <laughs> it's just a pain in the well, ass to get we it out of there. We don't want it to travel because it's, right. it's you know. Okay, so that's fair. Grandfather would always say, uh, would you let a three-year-old kid take a plane on its own and go into the no, U.S.? He's You're right rather letting a 40-year-old do that. So here's what perplexes me a little. So you have this incredibly cool philosophy about mm -hmm. aging. Yeah. Maybe not unique, but not common. Mm, you know, sure. maybe not the first and only guy to do it, but I mean, really committed to it. You have all this wine. What's the process in determining what wine is released, what vintage year? Yeah. So is, every does year, it vary or is it formula like it's no, 10 year it old vintage? It, no, it varies. It varies. And so is that by tasting yeah, or? We do one tasting. I release my allocations uh, the first week of January, and normally through Christmas, the whole family, we taste everything that it's in the cellar. That so allows you'll, us... You'll taste... So we're drinking a 2000. Yeah. When was that released? Now, 2023. So when did you determine the 2000s good to go to the market? Christmas 2022. You sat around, you were doing your tastings, and you said this was... How many other vintages... We normally release 10 different vintages at a time. So all our importers... What's the latest vintage? 2015. Okay. And so the oldest, it's 83. So the 2000s, somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So every importer that receives an allocation, a direct allocation from us, receive 
some of the current release and the other part of the allocation divided by 10 back library vintages um, with clearly smaller quantities, but they have access to all those libraries. There was less wine made now that you've added hectares. Yeah. Hopefully 20 years from now, a 20-year-old wine will have more bottles than... Hopefully. Right? Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Okay. <laughs> I say that. Um, but that's how it happens, yeah. So the, it's the luxury of releasing the wine exactly when it's performing at its best. Is that by committee? How many people are tasting it? Um, just the whole family, so it's five of us. So. It's very... Um, Subjective, I guess. Yeah, indeed. It's what you think. Yeah, wine, no one make, else. wine making is subjective. Well, We're yeah. trying to make the wine that we like. We're trying to sell the wine that we think we like drinking at that specific so time. So we're sitting here in November of 2023. Um, you know, you don't make a lot of wine, so sometimes they're difficult to get. So the current newest vintage you said is what 15 15 2015, yeah. and then like you said you go back to the 80s and all mm. of that at different levels um i run into this a lot and it's been happening where a wine is so terrific for all the right reasons it's made well it's made thoughtfully specific things go into it, like the way you age it and all that. But here's what happens. There's not a lot of it made. That makes it hard to get. And there's this secondary market, not necessarily the one that you control, mm -hmm. that makes it expensive. Like you don't participate in that. Mm -hmm. A restaurant will buy your wines that serves it for what you sell it for. Hopefully you could raise the prices through the years because of supply and demand and all that. But they can go in the, doesn't that drive you crazy or it's it just something in wine you have to accept? Is it there does. anything you could do? or It does. Spreading out information is definitely one of the best things to like, inform buyers that they should only buy through official distribution because everything else, it, it transcends my control over temperature, over quality of travel, over the wines that I decide are ready to drink. If I'm releasing certain wines only in Italy and I'm bottling with very little sulfur because they're not meant to travel and then I find them in New York, that pisses me off. Because it's, I... Who's doing that? Somebody's buying it there and secondarily? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that doesn't benefit the quality of the wine, which is why For you sure. use the words, it's pissing me off. Yes. That's not the product that yeah. you want. But once I inform every buyer that they should only buy through our official importers who receive an allocation and they have the exclusivity over, over paper in New York, um then it makes it easier because you have a lot of knowledgeable people knowing exactly right. what they're buying. And who they want to sell it to, right. who should get it. So Poliner has been your importer for a Ever. forever. <laughs> well, they share similar sensibilities yes. to, you know, what you do and all of yeah. that. Um, I think that's fair. But if people want to try your wines the best opportunities would be at certain restaurants mm -hmm. that understand, believe your wines and go out of their way to get it. Yeah, they and mainly go through gastronomy. Yeah, some retailer. But there's no other way, really. There's no online. Yeah. There's no mailing list. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I mean, New York, we're in New York, but there's a big country. New York's easier. To, yeah, everything. You, you know, can acquire find these wines and all of that. For sure. Um, that, that's interesting. That frustrates me because Burgundy has been like that you Ooh, know, for years. Um, all right. So we got to wrap up. I want to ask you about a couple more things. One thing that I'm so impressed with is in doing this show and talking to people and tasting wines. And if you just focus on Italy, that I think the greatest winemakers are women. I think you, Elisabetta Foradori, Acapinti, Stella Di Campalto <laughs> yeah. are not making good wines. They're making great, great and some of the most interesting, yeah. you know, and thoughtful wines. And I don't want to let that go unnoticed because it sounds like at your place, it's women running. That's <laughs> a lot of women. I think yeah. you mentioned your brother oh, may even, jump in yeah. in a few years because yeah, he's yeah. younger or whatever. Yeah. But I, I think that's awesome. And, and like I said. The, it's you know. incredible. All it's right. so cool. So let's, before we wrap up, talk to me about two things. There's mm-hmm. a very cool hospitality aspect about Pepe. Yes. And there's some incredible products, food products yeah. that you're making. Yeah. And I know that because a lot of wine people in New York and Psalms, whenever they get their hands on stuff, whether it's the flour, the, they're posting the crap out of it. <laughs> Can't wait to cook this tonight and all of that. Yeah. You know, so start with hospitality. Yeah. There's something going on on the property. Yes. And it's my sister's domain. Uh, so she's in charge of this um well, it, it was the house where grandfather was born, and we turned into seven rooms and a oh, restaurant. Me. And the restaurant is pretty much a farm-to-table, extremely well-executed ex- row produces that we farm and we grow on site. So we have a biodynamic garden, and we grow our wheats, and our chef makes incredible sourdough bread. And uh, So you have little fields of wheat yeah. that you're making your flowers? Yeah. Yeah, of ants and wheats. Uh, same philosophy that occurs in wine and it yeah. goes into food yeah. production, right? And um, and so the, in the kitchen, they're extremely careful in treating those produce with the utmost respect. And my sister pairs with all our wines. And so people can come and stay and... Uh, and there's this little corner in Abruzzo of, you know, how we live at Pepe. And uh, must be incredible. she's an incredible host. Wait, are the wines just Pepe wines or you bring in? For now, they're just Pepe. I got to get there before you change your mind. <laughs> no, no, for now it's our Pepe. And, and the, the menu changes every night because what we, Based on ingredients you know, what available. we pick every day is different. And the Does the it pairing, have a specific name? Agriturismo Emilio Pepe. Yeah. Okay. So it's like it's all right. it's all on the same site. Right. And uh, and so my sister changes the pairing every night. And uh, it's a very informal place with an incredible quality of produces, I'd say. So if I lived in that area, I'd eat there every night. I hope and assume it's busy. It is busy. We have a lot of New Yorkers coming. It's incredible well, yeah. to see. Like well, it's, well, yeah. you, We have collectors from all around the world coming to spend their summer holiday there because they want to learn more about the wines and have access to a lot of back vintages that they don't find abroad. And, and so it's kind of like an incredible place where they can, you know, explore and learn more about all the vintages and then so, see what we're doing in the cellar and walk the vines and Incredible. It's incredible that you make that um, accessible to people. 
Tell me about the products. We talked about yeah. wheat. You make flour, so chickpea, pasta, said, oil. My I, my dream is that every vineyard should be sandwiched by fields of non-vineyard thing. And, um, and grow these type of things. Yes. So everything that can nourish the family, the guests at the Agriturismo, and my team with healthy, highly nutritious food. So we are on a long base um, crop rotation of five years. So one crop doesn't go back into the same field before five years. And I grow a lot of different stuff. To regenerate the land and everything? Yeah, and to have like a long process. And we go lentils, chickpeas, um, fava beans, those we don't eat, which is, it's very good for nitrogen absorption of the soil. Um, Sunflowers, because they're beautiful. Um, Fields of them? Fields of them. That's cool. Uh, And then we do... Um, ants in wheats, and we do a durum and a tender. The durum is for pasta making. We make Senatore Capelli, that it's uh, pastified by an artisanal uh, pastificio and makes very um, low temperature and long drying pasta that it's like incredibly high quality and bronze extruded. Um, so we make our own pasta and the flour that has been using at the Agriturismo for bread making and all the handmade pasta that we make and the cakes for breakfast. Um, wow. Olive oil, we have around 600 trees of, um, of olive trees. Of older trees that have been um, on the property, or you planted in, them through the years. They're they're from they they were planted in the middle of the eighties, so okay. they're not extremely old, but no, you know but fairly. And they're all, all a mixture of varietals, and we press them cold, and and so we make some olive oil. So basically, I think do you send them out to be pressed, or do you have a like you no, make wine on premise? So, yeah, we the don't. olive oil you send the olives. Yeah, out. and basically at the Agriturismo, on certain period of the season where our biodynamic garden, it's very, you know, productive, they managed to serve 85% of everything that is grown on site. Wow. 85%. It's incredible. That's awesome. That should be a formula for everyone. And I think this is also replicating Abruzzo farming style of back in the 60s because each family had a little field of wheat, a little olives, and a little wine. And now we're making everything to sustain the family. It's like, it's it's autarchy. And that's what I'm trying to reproduce on a, on a scale of a farm that, you know, has a team, has importers all over the world, and has people coming to see. And, and so it's, I'm just trying to multiply that, but not changing the concept really. Right. Um, one of the things I mentioned to you earlier that I realized we didn't discuss and do this in two minutes or less. Mm-hmm. Everything we're talking about takes place in Abruzzo. Yes. People are like, people don't know, know. No, they go, where the hell is Abruzzo? <laughs> so Abruzzo is in central Italy. Take it from there. Yes. And tell me the location, the the uh, influences, Adriatic Mountains. Yeah. Just tell me quickly. Or two which minutes. Which affects what you do every day, uh-huh. whether it's the Us grains or the grapes or whatever. Central Italy towards the Adriatic coast, so east side. If you think of Rome and you draw a line towards the Adriatic coast, that's exactly where we are. Okay. We are on the northern corner that borders the Adriatic Sea on the east and to the north, it's Le Marche region. So we are in the northest part of Abruzzo. Abruzzo is a region that for, for the 75%, it's mountainous. 
but also has 300 kilometers of coast. So basically, where we are, we are 10 kilometers from the Adriatic Sea, and we are 80 kilometers from the peak of the Gran Sasso Mountain, which is the highest mountain of the Apennine Range. So in, in Both within, influences. Yeah. So in within 90 kilometers, we go from <laughs> 3,000 meters to sea level. So you can imagine it's very steep, and there are a lot of current of winds going back and forth uh, accordingly to the temperatures and the pressures. But it's a very windy area. And where we are located, it's a lot of rolling hills uh, formation. It's alluvial, has the mountains were formed of the Apennines, you know, the so sea retracted. Soils? Alluvial soil. Okay. The sea retracted and the mountains being washed out. A lot of alluvial creating those rolling hills that basically it's the only cultivable space and within the mountains that cover most part of Abruzzo. And the sea. Is that two minutes? Yeah, less, but it sounds like a pretty special place. I mean, I not the only place that's surrounded by coastal influence and mountains, but um, one of the few, you know, and the soils there are very interesting. All right. I told you that I won't let you leave here without you doing my wine list. I ask every one of oh. my guests the same five questions, and you need to answer them, and I'm going to give you some advice. Don't take a long time. Don't dwell on your answers. Mm -hmm. These are spontaneous answers. If you can't think of something, you can't think of something. So okay. here's the first question. First question is, what are you drinking now? What's in your fridge? What are you experimenting with? Are you shifting because the seasons are changing? You know, what now? Not always. I have to mention a specific wine. You can, you could talk, you know, you're like, I champagne, whatever. Brunello. So do you always drink Brunello or are you drinking a little more now? Why? I'm drinking it now because it's full. Okay, so that's a seasonal change, heavier wine. And one you, of, yeah, one of my favorite, and nowadays I'm specifically drinking the Rosso from Paradiso di Manfredi. Like that is the easiest wait, speak on my fridge. the Rosso fridge. from which vineyard? Paradiso di Manfredi. Okay, the Rosso, not the Mon... Yeah, because okay. it's right. it's we can talk more about Rosso and Brunello, but... No, 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 I'm on right. that. That's yeah. another show. Give me something else you're drinking. Um, Different than Brunello. Right now, I'm also drinking Cabernet Franc from Loire because I'm thinking that is, a yeah, that is a very interesting vision of understanding freshness coming from variety and not from acidity. I leave you with that. The Loire does it right. Um, all right, second question, maybe the goofiest one in the bunch. What is your favorite wine and food pairing? Not what you think is a good wine, but what do you like? What's, is it your own wines? Is it something else, champagne and oysters? I mean, what, what, what's, and obviously you don't eat it all the time, but when you do, it's like, oh, this is roast chicken and burgundy. It goes well every day. What's, what's your favorite wine and food? Pairing? I would say, I would say, very good Sauvignon from Jura and Comte would bring me to heaven all the time. Wow. Mm -hmm. So I don't think anyone's ever answered that, but I think that's really good. Mm -hmm. The grape goes great with the cheese. Yeah. The cheese has some character. Yeah, it's not that sharp, but it's a, yeah. And salty mm -hmm. and Sauvignon. That's a good one. Yeah. You did good on that one. Good. All right. Third question. And... 
this question can be around home in your travels, but what I want to ask you is your favorite wine restaurant and our bar. And let me preface a few things. What's a place you go into that has a great wine list? Maybe it's just a wine bar. Maybe it's a restaurant that has a great wine list. The vibe in the place is great. The people are knowledgeable. It's cool. What's a place like that? Now, I don't want you to think that if you mention something, you left friends out or these are your top. What are some places that you feel good about going into? Is there first anything locally to start? Very fast All right, in my answer mind. Answer that. The first one is a place in Piemonte. What's and it called? it's a restaurant where just a couple runs it. There are two people running that restaurant. Those are the places I'm looking and for. And they have the best financiera, which is this uh, dish made out of offals that is very typical in Piemonte. To me, that it... Offal? Organ meats? Yeah. You like that stuff? Wait, let me finish okay. with the wine pairing. Don't yell because at me. Because that is... is uh, and Marco, the chef to me, makes the most incredible version of it. And when I go there, I would pull a bottle of, of Accomasso, Rocca dell'Annunziata, and I'll be very happy. That's it, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, certainly an interesting answer. <laughs> what, um, anything else, you know, anything stick out in New York or if you're in Rome or Europe? Are there other places? Another place that it's like it's very dear to my heart is a place right in front um, the house where I was living in Burgundy, Bone, and it's a place called La Dilettante. Sure. It's one of the greatest wine bar in the world. So Jean-Baptiste Le Calion was on last yeah. week. I asked everyone the same question. Did he answer the same bar? Amazing. <laughs> and also, well, no, it wasn't him. It was Byron Bates. Byron yeah. runs the Wild World Festival, which is another natural. Mm-hmm. Jean-Baptiste didn't. Um, but it did come up within the last few. Yeah. All right. Great answers. I didn't mention this, but I post your answers on social media because people love to hear, you know. What Where do the winemakers go? Well, yeah, you know. <laughs> All right. Fourth question. Favorite all-time wine? When I initially asked the question, I wanted to know the most expensive and rare wine that Kiara ever drank. I don't care about that. I want to know your favorite all-time wine. That wine that influenced the way you think about wine. That was a gateway. That transcended you. Something that was important. You know, is there a wine or two that you drank that is just so important to how you think about wine now? Yeah. What? There are two. What? There are two. Okay. Two was good. Um, as a young girl, I had 07 Brise from Rougeard. Clos Rougeard? Clos Rougeard. Rosé? Brezé. Oh, Brezé. And that changed a lot of things. What was it and about? And the other one. You had never tasted anything like that? He, he rang a lot of bells in within. Okay, that's a great answer. Mm. What What do you know about 07? Did you taste the 07 because that's what it was around? It was pre-Mallow. Um, okay. It was bef- in 2010, Clojure changed cellar, and uh, the previous cellar was much colder. Mallow wasn't running because so the cellar was. So, this is sort of the old school stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, what's the second one? Soldera, Gianfranco Soldera. What year? Anything? Or just in general? I had a bunch because I did a whole study around them. And uh, Would I, you say that's one of the best Brunellos made? Soldera? I think it's one of. 
the very best, best wine wines. Italy has ever produced. Okay. Um, not easy to get either. Those are great answers. Um, and like I said, I'm going to post them. Final question. And this may be a little harder for you than other people. The question is, I want you to recommend to me the best wines, a red and a white, around $15, $20, U.S. retail. And like Will, my son, was here earlier, he can't show up at a party or a dinner with a crappy supermarket wine for $11, but he yeah. can't afford $45, $50 either. So what wines? You can go by category. You can go by maker, whatever. What red and what wine are the best quality to value in your mind? Did I stump you? It's a complicated question. Like Muscadet in France is very reasonable. And if you get the right stuff, it's, you know, stuff like... I think you also find a lot of, like, value in Chianti. I... That's a common answer because it's a real answer. So Chianti for red is a great answer. Some are more than that, but you can find stuff around that range. So that checks the box for red, which is usually harder for most people. Where are you going to go with white? You drink Sicilian wines? Fiano in Campania. Okay. So Campania and Fiano. Yeah. Good answer. All right. Did pretty good. Awesome. God, that was good. stressful. Um, I, didn't, I didn't mean to stress you out. All right. No, so they weren't. We're almost at the end, and I like the fact that we saved this for the end. Um, we do a feature at the end of the show called the Weekly Wine Sip, where mm -hmm. we taste, evaluate, um, and talk about a wine. And in my mind, it's crazy not to have a winemaker bring their wine and have them talk about it. So that concept makes sense. But when you have Chiaro with Pepe, Abruzzo de Multipiano, it's even better. <laughs> so whether you get mad at me or not, I'm pouring a little more because I drank some. In Magnum. That In is Magnum. also. So <laughs> I will set it up and you will talk about it. So Chiaro was kind enough, we use this old Italian term, to schlep around a magnum bottle of the 2000 Montepulciano de Abruzzo from Emilio Pepe. All right, let's talk about this wine a little and then we're gonna taste it. So this is one of the current releases that you evaluated should be released. Yeah, I think it's in a very sweet drinking spot right now. I think early, Early 2000s are now showing particularly well. They are in that evolution stage in which they've gained complexity and they still have a lot of energy and they're calling for food. And I think they're in a very sweet spot because like they get more exciting in the nose um, and still they have, you know, tannins that they got, you know, more imbalance in within the structure and, uh, and they still have a lot of liveliness and, and, and freshness to it. So I'm looking at this wine and I'm drinking it and we're going to talk about color, nose palette and all that. But all of that, it's still a very energetic, young wine. Yeah. It's terrific in that sense. There's no real sense of, you know, any kind of aging. I'm sure now from when it came out a few years later, there's oh, some, sure. but the fruit is there. Yeah. The tannins are there. What was the 2000 vintage like? It was a very balanced season with a very warm summer. 
Okay. So if we think like one for example, has been a much more iconic vintage for us because it really had the rain at the right time and the sun at the right time. And this was exactly the same just with a warmer summer. And um, only, only yesterday I was saying, oh, is it 2000 a warm summer, uh, a warm vintage? I was like, yeah, we can call it a warm vintage. But our conception of warm season has been totally changed now versus now that. versus what it was because yeah. now a warm i've had 2021 being warm and by warm i say 70 millimeters of water wow. since bad break till harvest time that is warm that probably we call it warm but wasn't the same I know. you know like it's, it's, we even changed like our idea of what is warm you know it's so, a whole different thing yeah all right so Let's do some evaluation and talk about it. Let's give it a sniff and we'll throw it over the tongue and you'll tell me stuff. So the color for a 20-year-old wine has virtually no bricking. This is basically, and you have to tell me this, I'm almost asking. This is basically similar to the color on release? I would say... Lighten up a little? Yeah. But it's holding color nicely. Holding color. Normally there are wines that age very, very slowly. Okay. Because because they've never received any sort of oxidation in the earlier stage. They've never seen any oco or any microoxygenation. So they tend to retain energy for a very long time. For sure. All right. Let's stick your nose in there and tell me what descriptors you get on the nose. That is so tricky to say to a winemaker that. Well, don't make me come over there and twist your arm. <laughs> So a couple things. Yeah. That's fair to say that. Yeah. But I still need you to help me. There's two things. What are what are the typical traditional nose Elements. aspects of a, a Montepulciano d'Abruzzo? Yeah. Red um, fruit, would I say, dark fruit. Yeah, you normally have a lot of red fruit. Like right. I see like uh, um, a lot of cherry here. I. It's so cherry. funny when I – when you – we poured it. Yeah. The cherry thing. Cherry grew and out. chocolate. I'll yeah, say. not strawberry oh, no. or yeah. A, yeah. Cherry and chocolate right now. Definitely That's chocolate. What you have, yeah. That's this too. Yeah. But you'll get too. that in the wines. Yeah. But and it can a brighter, vary. A brighter version right. of them. And, uh, right. and what else is in there? They're always like unless they are rainy vintages like 2002, 2013, and 14. What does the rain do? Um, they they bring them on a floral profile, but normally they're on a fruit profile. So, so rain will bring more floral out. Yeah. So you'll yeah. know a rainy vintage. Yeah. All right. Let's go mouthfeel. I think these wines are beautiful in the mouth, but mm. they're not these glycerin-y, unctuous wines. They're they're medium. Yeah. Yeah. Right now you have like a solid tannin integration, like. Tannins are there, present, but they create this velvety sensation all around your mouth and uh, and with a kick of acidity that is still there and brings freshness and brings length. Um, all right, so that's the mouthfeel. Let's talk about the palate. I need you to do palate descriptors. Do the palate descriptors replicate a lot of the nose descriptors or are there is there cherry on the palate? What Sam, else? you're better doing this than me doing this, really. I suck at this. <laughs> Go ahead. I get the cherry on the palate. I get the red fruit. 
I'm trying to think of what else. That subtle stuff that I'm not good at. What else? Well, for me, like historically, I've always learned to taste wine texturally, and now I taste them texturally, and you have a lot of that leather um, thing yes. coming up, you know? And, That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. What, what you know is there, but you can't describe it. Yeah. For sure, even in the nose a little. All right, so this wine, what's a good pairing with this wine? Woo, lamb. You need lamb? to have lamb with it. Okay. This calls for lamb all over okay. it. Okay. Um, stewed lamb, stewed lamb with lamb, peppers, olives. leg, yeah. all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Because it stands up to a little of the lamb gaminess, meaty, yeah. a little fat. Yeah. All of that appears yeah. well with. Yeah. Um, so... If I say to you, who's your favorite kid? That's an unfair question. Oh. But when you look at the 2000 vintage, where yeah. do you... Navigate? Where do you... Is that one of the better ones? Was that a tougher one? Or? Oh, no. This was why, like one of the solid, more iconic okay. vintages that we had. This is a really so, solid... Very Pepe. Pepe, right. Very Pepe. Which is really, which is really all you want. Yeah. All right. So like I said, I will post... Uh, Kiara's wine list answers, and I will post info on the wine that we tasted. Um, let me do a quick wrap-up, and I want to get some information from you about a lot of the things we talked to. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you go to get your pods course if you like the uh, podcast leave a positive review you can follow us on instagram where we post a lot of the stuff i've been telling you at s ben ruby and on x at ben ruby two different handles but you can always reach us with the hashtag the grape nation to find us on both um, we are also on facebook at the grape nation as i mentioned we will post kiara's wine list those five questions and are great answers. And the weekly wine sip, I'll give you more information on the wine that we um, tasted on our social media sites. All right, so Kiara, where can we find more information about you? If people personally want to follow you on Instagram, like what she, yeah. what she up to. So. And where can we find more information on Emilio Pepe, which includes the wines, the agro-tourism, the products. Yeah. So there's a lot of different things there. Where yeah. do we... Well, easier easier to, you know, keep all the updates and the write-ups and the all the news that we have and uh, our thoughts on farming and agriculture is on Instagram. I'm Emilio Pepe and okay. that's me is running that the account. Is that an account that you control? Yeah, it's me personally. Because I know it's your name, yeah. <laughs> it's me personally. So you think it's the winery, but it's so, yeah, you. But it's a little of everything. And, yeah, and website, um, www.emediopepe.com. It's where all the bookings of the Agriturismo happens and all the, you know, but like the deeper stuff and the vineyard the, maps. The food products, are they available in the U.S. or you have to order them? Mm. Every now and then, we make such a small quantity okay. for now that it's complicated. But um, hopefully, in the future, when I expand my project of farming, right, which will a be. lot of exciting things in the future. Yeah. And we talked about the wines. The wines are at you know certain restaurants. Mm -hmm. The importer feeds them to certain retailers and all of that. 
Um, it's not a secret that the production is not high. They're very sought after, so they're not easy to get. I didn't bring Chiara on to tease you um, to get interested in the wines and not be able to get them. One way or another, you will be able to get them. But I think it's important to know the commitment and the history and what's going on over there and how Kier is um, carrying the torch. So I want to thank you for coming on. I've been looking forward to this. Um, I will see you tomorrow at Caractere. Um, good Amazing. luck with that. I hope one day to be trotting through your vineyards. That would be lovely. I mean, I would go out of my way. <laughs> if I was in Kazakhstan, I would take a flight to Abruzzo, you know. That would be um, lovely. Sam. So thank you to Chiara Pepe for taking a, a generous amount of time to talk about everything. Thank you, as always, to our engineer, Armin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. <laughs>